Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home, where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we'll be reading Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 30, and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on Mark. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How could Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, that indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is the word of the Lord. We all know how painful it is to have our conduct misunderstood and misrepresented when we are doing right. It is a trial which our Lord Jesus Christ had to endure continually all through his earthly ministry. We have an instance in the passage before us. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem saw the miracles which he worked. They could not deny their reality. What then did they do? They accused our blessed Savior of being in league and union with the devil. They said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. In our Lord's answer to this wicked accusation, there are expressions which deserve special attention. Let us see what lessons they contain for our use. We ought to notice, in the first place, how great is the evil of dissension and divisions. This is a lesson which is strongly brought out in the beginning of our Lord's reply to the scribes. He shows the absurdity of supposing that Satan would cast out Satan, and so help to destroy his own power. He appeals to the notorious fact, which even his enemies must allow, that there can be no strength where there is division. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. This truth is one which does not receive sufficient consideration. On no point has the abuse of the right of private judgment produced so much evil. The divisions of Christians are one great cause of the weakness of the visible church. They often absorb energy, time, and power which might have been well bestowed on better things. They furnish the infidel with a prime argument against the truth of Christianity. They help the devil. Satan indeed is the chief promoter of religious divisions. If he cannot extinguish Christianity, he labors to make Christians quarrel with one another and to set every man's hand against his neighbor. None knows better than the devil that to divide is to conquer. Let us resolve, so far as in us lies, to avoid all differences, dissensions, and disputes in religion. Let us loathe and abhor them as the plague of the churches. We cannot be too jealous about all saving truths. 
but it is easy to mistake morbid scrupulosity for conscientiousness and zeal about mere trifles for zeal about the truth. Nothing justifies separation from a church but the separation of that church from the gospel. Let us be ready to concede much and make many sacrifices for the sake of unity and peace. We ought to notice in the second place what a glorious declaration our Lord makes in these verses about the forgiveness of sins. He says, I assure you that any sin can be forgiven, including blasphemy. These words fall lightly on the ears of many persons. They see no particular beauty in them. But to the man who is alive to his own sinfulness and deeply sensible of his need of mercy, these words are sweet and precious. All sins shall be forgiven. The sins of youth and age, the sins of head and hand and tongue and imagination, the sins against all God's commandments, the sins of persecutors like Saul, the sins of idolaters like Manasseh, the sins of open enemies of Christ like the Jews who crucified him, the sins of backsliders from Christ like Peter, all all may be forgiven. The blood of Christ can cleanse all away. The righteousness of Christ can cover all and hide all from God's eyes. The doctrine here laid down is the crown and glory of the gospel. The very first thing it proposes to man is free pardon, full forgiveness, complete remission, without money and without price. Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and that by him all that believe are justified from all things. Acts 13.39 Let us lay hold on this doctrine without delay, if we never received it before. It is for us as well as for others. We too this very day, if we come to Christ, may be completely forgiven. Though our sins have been as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Isaiah 1.18 Let us cleave firm to this doctrine if we have received it already. We may sometimes feel faint and unworthy and cast down, but if we have really come to Jesus by faith, our sins are fully forgiven. They are cast behind God's back, blotted out of His book of His remembrance, sunk into the depths of the sea. Let us believe and not be afraid. We ought to notice in the last place that it is possible for a man's soul to be lost forever in hell. The words of our Lord are distinct and express. He speaks of one who had never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. This is a dreadful truth beyond doubt, but it is a truth, and we must not shut our eyes against it. We find it asserted over and over again in Scripture Figures of all kinds are multiplied, and language of every sort is employed in order to make it plain and unmistakable. In short, if there is no such thing as eternal damnation, we may throw the Bible aside and say that words have no meaning at all. We have great need to keep this dreadful truth steadily in view in these latter days. Teachers have arisen up who are openly attacking the doctrine of the eternity of punishment, or laboring hard to explain it away. Men's ears are being tickled with plausible sayings about the love of God 
and the impossibility of a loving God permitting an everlasting hell. The eternity of punishment is spoken of as mere speculative question, about which men may believe anything they please. In the midst of all this flood of false doctrine, let us hold firmly to the old truth. Let us not be ashamed to believe that there is an eternal God, an eternal heaven, and an eternal hell. Let us remember that sin is an infinite evil. It needed an atonement of infinite value to deliver the believer from its consequences, and it entails an infinite loss on the unbeliever who rejects the remedy provided for it. Above all, let us fall back on plain scriptural statements like the one before us today. One plain text is worth a thousand difficult arguments. Finally, if it be true that there is an eternal damnation, let us give diligence that we ourselves do not fall into it. Let us escape for our lives and not linger. Genesis 19, 16-17 Let us flee for refuge to the hope set before us in the gospel and never rest until we know and feel that we are safe. And never, never let us be ashamed of seeking safety. Of sin, worldliness, and the love of pleasure, we may well be ashamed, but we will never need to be ashamed of seeking to be delivered from an eternal hell. That is the end of Rao's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today, and may the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory. In considering what we've just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? First, are we eager to fight over any doctrinal issue that someone disagrees with us on, or eager to unite with all who love the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, as one author has said, to reach over the fence and shake hands often with those whom we disagree on issues not related to the gospel? Second, do we believe, even feel in our hearts that our sins are freely pardoned and fully forgiven? If not, dear friend, what stops you from turning to Christ even now? If you have, do you struggle to believe this from time to time? If this is you, put your full weight down on this glorious promise. Cling to it believing the word of Christ rather than your fickle feelings? And third, do we struggle to believe in an eternal hell? Are we tempted to find a thousand difficult arguments to do away with a clear teaching such as this? Does believing this doctrine cause us to flee to Christ and be ashamed of the sins that would send us to such an end? May it be so.